0: Grab my sermon notes over here. So if you have a Bible with you, you can open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. I'm going to be spending most of my time there. Um, I started a series last week called Pandemic Christianity, a faith for such a time as this. Recognizing that this is a time, especially as we move into the colder, darker months, where we need to kind of steel ourselves, prepare for what is to come, even when that what is to come is pretty vague and low resolution, and it could change at any moment. Last week, I talked about Kierkegaard's three stages of life that kind of map on to three stages you can go through a pandemic. He talked about the aesthetic stage, the ethical stage, the religious stage. And those were three fancy ways that he said, you can either just center around pleasure, Let the world go to hell in a handbasket and be like, whatever, I'm just going to get what's mine and center around what's comfortable and fun and enjoyable for me. Or, he said, maybe in a slightly more noble path, you could try and save yourself by saying, no, I'm going to figure this out, I'm going to straighten up and fly right, I'm going to overcome whatever challenges are in front of me, I'm going to leverage my skills and my power and my will, and I'm going to be an overcomer. And Kierkegaard said lots of people try and do that through moralism or by taking on religious code. But he said, ultimately, those are failing strategies because you're still putting yourself at the center. He said, what you need to do in life, but I think it's even more pertinent in a pandemic, is to think in a fresh um, and more rigorous way, how do I center on Jesus during this time? Because if you are centering on yourself and moving into and through a pandemic, you are building your aspirations and ambitions on uh, anything but solid ground. Um, we want to be building on the rock. But where do we go from here? It's one thing to say I want to build on Jesus. I want Him to be central. What does that look like, though? And you know, I didn't start this series with a key scripture in mind. I was praying and processing and saying, God, is there like a a verse? I'm not a big person who's like into life verses or like key verses for a season. But I was leaving that door open. Maybe it's a particular story that I want to anchor this series in. And as just part of my daily reading. I came across 1 Corinthians 16, verses 13 and 14. And I just felt like God led me to that, uh, those two verses because it's such an awesome, I think, encapsulation of the particular needs that need to be front and center for us as Christians when we move through these kinds of uncertain, difficult times. Now it's a strange verse because it's direct instruction, but it's nested at the end of 1 Corinthians 16, which is Paul's first letter to the Corinthian church. And he's basically giving a lot of instructions around relationships. When Timothy comes, I want you to do this. I'm going to try and go over here. And he's talking about all these relationships, setting things up for the church. And then right in the middle of that, he drops these words. He says, be alert, stand firm in the faith, be courageous... Be strong, do everything in love. I want to break this down quickly. We'll kind of move into and out of this verse in this message, but also through this series. There's a lot here, but let me just give you a uh, a bit of that first level flavor for what's happening here and some of the linguistic nuance. So the word be alert is in the present active imperative. And if you're not an English nerd, what that means is It's something that you're constantly doing in the moment. You're actively doing this and it's to be alert. And some translations might even use the word wake up or watch out or be aware, but it's this idea of being sharp. right? It's the opposite of when you wake up and you're groggy and you're kind of moving through your morning rhythm, getting a coffee or tea and waiting for things to kick in and being like okay, now I'm kind of ready to tackle the day. This is being awake and alert, sharp. Stand firm in the faith. As you might imagine, this is a military term that refers to holding one's position. So it's a, it's a stance of I'm ready to absorb whatever's coming at me. I'm strong. I see it. I'm alert. I'm ready to take whatever comes my way. And notice that the stand firm is very connected to the faith. Now, this is important. It does not say stand firm in faith, as if faith is talked about like a attitude or a mindset, like positive thinking. Like stand firm in positive thinking. I have faith that things are going to work out. It says the faith, meaning the Christian faith. What you've been taught through the in this context, Paul is saying what you've been taught through the apostles, our New Testament, and the already established Word of God, the Old Testament. Paul is saying, I want you to stand firm in that faith. This is the time to double down, to learn more, to expand your understanding of who God is, um, deepen your appreciation for His Word, begin to mine His Word more. So it's not just adopting a posture of positivity. It's about saying, putting on the full armor of God, which includes the Word of God. Be courageous. This is an interesting word. It's the only time it occurs in the entire New Testament. And the Greek word is andresathe, which the most literal translation you can get is act like men. It would be the cultural equivalent to us saying like man up. It's not specifically speaking to men. Paul is invoking this soldier, Father, leader image, and all males in that culture, or all leaders in that culture were males. He was saying, This is a time for leadership to stand up, to be courageous, to act like men, to be mature, to not be groveling around like children, not tossed to and fro, but to be solid in your faith, solid in your uh, life witness for Jesus. He says, Be strong. But this is the word that is written in the passive voice. And that's significant. Because almost every translation will translate it as be strong. But if you read comment, uh, commentaries, the vast majority of them will say it really should be rendered be made strong or be strengthened. Because it's passive. It's not something you're doing. It's something that's being done to you. And that's really important because Paul is saying I want you to do these things so that you are strengthened, so that God strengthens you. The energy and the strength that we need to live out the Christian faith, especially during times like this, doesn't happen by us just determining to be strong. I'll just do it. I'll be stronger today than I was yesterday. That's just willpower. There's a place for that in the Christian life. But this passage is saying, be strengthened. Allow yourself to be strengthened by God's own Spirit because you're not going to be able to overcome these challenges on your own. The strength that a Christian needs to move through times like this isn't derived from themselves. It's derived from God. And then as a summation, he says, do everything in love. Everything. He front ends at it at the start of the sentence. Orthodoxy, right thinking... Right doctrine, orthopraxis, right living, doing the right things behaviorally, without love is not God's will and is not God's way. So he's like, I want you to do these things. And I, want to, I want you to express and to manifest your love for Jesus, but you've got to do it in a way that's loving and caring. One commentator says this, it's really significant to note that do everything in love follows these strong encourage, uh, encouragements to manliness and strength and power. In manliness, Paul is not looking for aggressiveness or self-assertion, but the strength that shows itself in love. Just like in First Corinthians chapter 13, he's concerned with an all-pervading nature of Christian love. Nothing we do is outside its scope. And so we shouldn't overlook the significance of it. Love is more than just an accompaniment of Christian actions. It's the very atmosphere in which Christian lives um, are expressed and have their being. And the word love there is agape. There's different words in the Greek for love, but this is the word agape. It's the highest, most morally demanding, most self-giving, most other-affirming and caring love that you can have. It's the way that God loves us in Jesus. It's not a brotherly love. It's not a romantic love. It's not like a friendship, like buddy-buddy love. Do everything, the Spirit through Paul writes, with agape love. A deep, self-giving love love. Now I'm not saying you have to, but I think these two verses, 1 Corinthians 16:13 or 14, I think these are worthy of your memorization over the next few days and weeks. This is a great uh, section of scripture to memorize. They hold really powerful principles together. And if you begin memorizing them now, as the series unfolds and builds, you're going to be able to sort of see it as a diamond and turn it over and see different facets of it and say, oh, that's interesting. Oh, you know, in light of last Sunday, oh yeah, that makes me consider this differently. And look at how beautiful it is when you turn it over here. They're seemingly very, it seems, they seem to be very simple truths and they are on the most simplistic level, but there is powerful principles here for how to move through a pandemic faithfully. Okay, last week I talked about the human experience of dread and how during a pandemic that kind of gets amped up to 11. And this week I want to talk about another hardship that is common to everybody at different stages of their life. But again, I think really gets amped up during uh, the times that we find ourselves living in. And that is the experience of like loneliness, loneliness and isolation. Uh, before the... Pandemic before you know, COVID really uh, threw everything uh, into chaos. We already knew that we were facing a loneliness epidemic. There's lots of headlines, um, Washington Post, USA Today, Boston Globe, New York Times, The Atlantic, Slate have all been steadily, Globe and Mail, Toronto Star have all been steadily churning out research from healthcare providers who are saying, We are moving into an epidemic of loneliness. People are reporting high levels of isolation and loneliness. And then people in public health about five or six years ago were really starting to study the effects of loneliness on the body and on the social infrastructure. There's a loneliness epidemic, reports the Surgeon General. Biggest threat facing middle-aged men isn't smoking or obesity, it's loneliness. Um, how social isolation is killing us. Social isolation kills more people per year than obesity. The threat is really serious. Dr. Uh, Vivek Murthy, who was the first person to call loneliness an epidemic, he showed that loneliness causes a very insidious type of stress on the body. And it can lead to chronic inflammation Increased risk for heart disease, arthritis, diabetes, and um, loneliness, uh, Dr. Murthy believes, has the same effect on overall mortality as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. It's a serious threat. And it affects us in profound ways. And ironically, in our quest for self-fulfillment, right? Kierkegaard's aesthetics or ethical stages of life, we actually accelerate the movement into loneliness. When you center on yourself, obviously, you're going to increase your felt sense of loneliness. Because your whole world, whether you realize it or not, is slowly being built around what works for me, and what makes me comfortable, and what would be enjoyable for me. So even if you don't intend to, you do very much slowly marginalize other people from your life. Not necessarily completely, but relationships that might have tipped over into being really good friendships. Like really good, now we're like friendships. And, fr- and people who would have filled that gap of like, like just good friends. Like not besties, but like just, I, I, I'm friends with that person. Now they become kind of like acquaintances. Still friendly, but there's not, not that relational glue there. And that was, again, already happening before COVID-19. Now you add physical distancing, calls to physically isolate, socially distant, uh, cut down the amount of people you're connecting with and create a small bubble. And our felt sense of loneliness is going to increase. And we're seeing that through um, the uh, drug overdoses that have spiked to new records. And suicidality and just depression and anxiety and people, uh, I I shouldn't say the percentage because I can't remember, but I think there was at least one uh, mental health line that in the first three months in COVID experienced like a 312% increase in the amount of calls coming in to deal with anxiety, depression, navigating uh, this, getting connected to a counselor or therapist. Now, one of the things that has really helped me during this time of isolation, especially early on, was regathering as a church. Even doing that imperfectly, awkwardly, was still very, very uh, healing for my own heart and really, really strengthening and encouraging. And I talked to a lot of people and they said, I was surprised after not attending church for a while and then going back, even a shorter service and not as many people and awkward seating... I was kind of surprised at how strengthening it was, how good it felt to be back worshiping and learning and growing with other Christians again. And I didn't, when I was isolating, I didn't really notice it that much. But now that I'm back, I'm like, oh, yeah, I've missed this. And sometimes we think the Bible and prayer is enough to sustain the Christian life. Like, if we're really, really serious and we know the Bible and we know how to engage it and we do that consistently every day and we have a deep, rich, personal prayer life, that somehow that would be enough. And everything else is helpful, it will feed into it, but not essential. The Bible's food, prayer's oxygen, and we should be able to nourish ourselves through that. But I think this time has shown us that. Isolation and loneliness um, can't be overcome simply by doubling down into personal Bible study and personal prayer. Maybe in your experience you disagree with that. In my experience, it's held very much uh, true. That even with feeding on Scripture and even with prayer... I have felt a huge weight and huge lack of spiritual vibrancy. And I know it's tied to the fact that I just haven't been able to get with as many Christians to connect together in meaningful ways. I mean, if you think about it, the Bible and prayer need a context through which you can express and experience God's truth and power. And that context is relationships. God didn't design us to live Uh, in isolation, we can't thrive as human beings on our own. We can't live into what God has for us if our bubbles are only six people and no further and we hunker down. When God saves his people, when God saves us, he, he does something more. I think, I hope we all understand this. He does something more than just secure our eternal destiny with him in heaven. He leads us into a new kind of life. And that new kind of life involves connecting us with other people who know and love and trust Him. Psalm 68 says God sets the lonely in families. God's will and part of His plan of deliverance and salvation is to save us from isolation into life-giving relationships where we can experience laughter and joy and support and care fun, grace. And so when God saves us, He often leads us to a church family that's designed to be a new creation family for us. A new network of relationships through which we discover how to live for God and how to love Him. Let's read this verse again. Be alert. Stand firm in the faith. Be courageous. Be strong or be made strong. Do everything in love how did you read that? And what I mean by that is, did you read this as an instruction to you as an individual? Like you have to do these things. It it falls to you. Or did you read this as a summons to an entire group of people? Because that's that's how it's supposed to be read. And you're like, well, surely it has individual application. For sure it does. But here's the problem. If you don't hear... Um, this as a summons to a group of people, to a local church, to us in this room, then what can happen is you can think that this is something that you're supposed to fulfill instead of something that we're supposed to do together. And if you think it's something that you are supposed to fulfill, then having other Christians in your life is totally optional. They might help, but you don't need it. You can do this. But the whole point of this passage, the the uh, subcurrent is, we got to do this together. We need each other. Christian relationships and friendships aren't optional. They are necessary. The shortest lived marketing campaign for the U.S. Army was launched in two thousand and one, went to two thousand and six. It was a five year campaign. And the slogan for those five years, they switched it from Be All You Can Be. You guys probably remember that. Be all that you can be. All over, right? They switched it. Does anyone remember what it was? An army of one. An army of one. That's what they switched it to. Only lasted five years. Shortest lived and least successful slogan in U.S. Army history. The intent was to convey the idea that when properly trained, a U.S. soldier can serve and act and effect like an army of one. They're like a Swiss army knife. And it was meant to invoke this idea that you can be like a Rambo, one person taking on the world super soldier. It was meant to be inspirational. But so many people received it as nonsensical and it totally fell flat, right? Because the point is that an army isn't one person. There's no such thing as a one-man army. An army is a group of people that works together, that pulls in the same direction, that strives together. And the reason why armies are important is because armies, battalion and groups of people, can overcome enemies that individuals couldn't if they tried. No matter how gifted, no matter how well trained, no matter how strong, no matter how smart, you need an army to overcome certain obstacles. You need an army to overcome certain barriers, certain enemies. And the Bible says we need to be a part of the salvation army. The army that is in Jesus. Where we are working and serving and laboring together. And we need relationships. But I also want to say we need something more than just relationships. That's why the Bible calls Christians beyond just like, um, familiarity with other Christians in their life. And I would argue the Bible even calls Christians beyond just Christian friendships in their life. The Bible has a very loaded, specific word that it expects Christians to pursue in their relationships with one another. And that word is fellowship. And that's a different word than being buds or being friends or being acquaintances. Those things aren't bad. But fellowship is a deeper and more expansive and richer and more serious term. And it implies more than just shared values or natural camaraderie, right? That's simpatico. You meet someone, you think along the same ways, you read some of the same books and you're interested in the same things and there's like, oh, there's just an ease at the relationship. That's not fellowship. That's camaraderie. That's simpatico. Great fellowship is when christians come together intentionally whether it's two people or 200 to pray together to learn together to discuss the things of god together to turn part of their time towards jesus and his kingdom and to be strengthening and challenging each other one of the earliest encapsulations of how the first christian communities lived is found in acts 2:42 It says, they, the early Christians, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Notice that it said, they devoted themselves to fellowship. They didn't just have it. It wasn't a byproduct. They devoted themselves to it. Meaning, they sought to make it happen. And that means that for them and for us, fellowship was meant to be a priority. It isn't something that they kind of said, well, maybe if I just kind of go to church and... Uh, connect with a few people randomly like it'll happen. They said, I've got to nurture this in my life. I need to establish this. I need to devote myself to fellowship. As we move into the fall and winter months, we are going to increase and have an increase of pandemic isolation and loneliness. And it will steadily climb especially as the days get shorter, we spend more time inside. What is your plan to counter that development? Because it's going to happen. It's going to slowly creep into your heart. I would say there's never been a more important time than to prioritize intentional Christian fellowship. It's really, really important right now. Don't wait till November or January. Start doing it right now. Now, please, I'm I'm not. Um, I don't want this to sound condescending in any way. I just want to make sure that people didn't hear. There's never been a more important time to prioritize your Christian friendships. That's not what I'm saying. You can have friends who are Christians. You can hang out with Christians who are your friends. That's a good thing. That is not necessarily fellowship. If I invite Matt over, or we go for a walk together and we just talk about life just generally, that's two Christians hanging out. That's awesome. It's friendship. It's not a bad thing. But it becomes fellowship when one of us says, How is your walk with God? How can I be praying for you? I was just reading this in scripture, and I really have a hard time with it. Have you ever heard anything like this before? When we when Christians Turn together towards an intentional time of prayer, sharing, confession, encouraging one another, reading scripture. Then it's fellowship. And I think the temptation over the next few months will be will be for us to say to look at our lives and say, "I have friends in my life who are Christian. I, I'm glad for them. I, I like hanging out with them." And then we won't prioritize Christian fellowship, which is getting to that next level of growth and intimacy and connection. And then we'll get to November, January, early spring, and we'll feel really depleted spiritually. But it won't make sense to us why. Because I've been doing stuff with other Christians, like I I work with other Christians at the Christian school, I am neighbors with Christians, I see them on Sunday, we're connecting for a bit after the service. Those are important little nodes of connection. But you've got to have a smaller circle of people through, whom it might just be one person, that you can really consistently, ideally at least once a week, maybe several times a week if it's just a, a personal relationship, connect with at that deeper level. Praying together, sharing, studying the Word together, listening to a sermon, and talking about it together. Hanging out with Christian friends is honestly so fun and so great. And it's so important. But it is not enough to dispel deep spiritual loneliness. That only happens when we enter into fellowship with a few key people. And so when we read, be alert, stand firm in the faith, be courageous, be strong, do everything in love, I want us to hear that as a summons for us to not just be involved in more Christian programs, come to church more, read your Bible more, pray more. I want us to hear that as this is something that we are being called to do together. Now, are we all going to have fellowship opportunities with every person in the church? No, we're going to have to break it up. We're going to have to um, connect with three people over here, 10 people over here. We can't all be in each other's lives to that degree, but we are all responsible. And there's an amazing opportunity for us right now to begin living into this verse and living into this vision by saying, how do I take this Christian friendship, which is awesome, and redirect this time to fellowship? Or even some of this time. Remember the word, be strong, is actually in the passive. Be strengthened. There are lots of ways for this to happen for you within our church. We have a number of different groups. Do you want to put the slide up, Julia? Sorry, next one. Um, I don't care the mechanism and the context of of your fellowship with other Christians, but I do care, and I am going to be pushing you starting this week and in the weeks that follow to be taking up one of these things. Maybe there's another expression. uh, I'm fine. I just want us all to be trying to establish or to continue to grow if you already have something established in a context that pushes you beyond just hanging out, talking shop, you know, catching up how are the kids, how are things going, how's school, and moving into let's pray. What's on your heart? What are you learning about God? Um, how can I be supporting and encouraging you in your Christian walk? And you can do that through one-on-one mentoring, peer mentoring. Maybe you have a, someone who you trust. You say, hey, can we start going out for coffee once, once or twice a month and just connecting and sharing and just going over some basic questions. I can give you some questions on what to do in a mentoring relationship getting involved in a small group, either hosting or being a part of one. I know that's made more complicated and will be made more complicated in the months ahead as people are more hesitant to have groups of people in their home. But we can you can do Zoom groups. You can meet here at the church. Uh, Even just during the day, meet in this space. You can be physically distant. Um, But being involved in a small group or a 3-to-1 group, groups of three people who meet together for two hours once a month, We've got three to one groups in our church. We have four to one groups in our church. We even have a six to one group in our church. I don't care what you call it. Again, it doesn't matter to me. I'm not trying to advocate for any of these brands or mechanisms. I'm trying to advocate for fellowship. I want all of us to be entering into one of these things this fall. Getting involved in youth and young adults is a great way to be pushed beyond just like hanging out with your Christian buds to like, okay, now we're getting into some of the deep stuff and the real stuff of God. Maybe it's a book study. You're going to take a Christian book or a book that really challenges your faith and read it and talk about it together, get together at least once a month, but more ideally twice a month, weekly, prayer group, like bow on Monday night, even just setting it up and saying, how about we, you know, it would be really easy for Matt and I, right, because we're next to our neighbors. So this could be our example. It could be really easy to say, at this time, every Friday, 345, we're going to pause, we're going to meet out in the front lawn, and we're just going to share response to three, like one question. How can I be praying for you? We're going to pray for each other. That may be five or ten minutes, but that's powerful, sweet fellowship. So it doesn't have to be this big thing. It doesn't have to be complicated, but it does have to be intentional. It's not just going to happen. You've got to kind of take the bull by the horns and say, hmm, which of these would work for me? Maybe a Zoom Bible study. Maybe I can't commit to the whole year, but maybe I'll try something for October and November. Alpha Online... Um, maybe we'll just talk about the sermons on Sunday. We'll keep it really low-key. Most important thing you got out of the sermon, how did it challenge you? How can we be praying for you? And where do you see God at work in your life? And we'll just have three or four people on Zoom talking about that sharing. That's awesome. You will experience deep and profound fellowship if you enter into a process like that. Now, this week I'm going to send out instructions on how you can get started doing a group like this, how you can get involved in one. If you're like, I'd like to get involved in one, but I'm not really sure how to start. I'll be sending out instructions this week. Being part of this, one of these kinds of groups or or, or uh, relational contexts is going to go a long way towards curbing loneliness and isolation. But I want to issue this warning. And this comes out of my own personal experience comes out of my pastoral experience. comes out of my experience of listening to other pastors who have walked similar roads with their church as it relates to um, helping people be delivered from isolation and loneliness. And that warning is this. If you do not prioritize any of these contexts, if you don't prioritize fellowship, and you think that reading your Bible, showing up at church, small talk with Christian friends, and just generally connecting and hanging out with good Christian people, if that's going to be enough, I do want to warn you and prepare you that you are likely going to feel a progressive sinking and slumping into greater spiritual deterioration and isolation over the next six months. I I would almost guarantee it. That's not a threat. right? It's a warning. And it's grounded in God's Word, my experience... Uh, my experience the experience of people who have shared with me this is something that we have to actively do and we have to apply ourselves we have to devote ourselves to this rick warren said fellowship he had a really corny way of describing fellowship he's like it's two fellows rowing on the same ship on the same boat that's what fellowship is that's the word picture and that's a really really corny way of describing fellowship but where it's helpful is to say, don't, ex- don't expect to experience fellowship if you're not willing to do some rowing. You, d- you just got to be willing to do some rowing. God has provided a means through which to combat and overcome pandemic loneliness, and that is His church and the fellowship that can be had in the church. But His vision for fellowship requires our devotion to that vision and a loving commitment to one another. So let's take up that call to fellowship so that we can be alert, we can stand firm in the faith, we can be courageous, we can be strong, and we can learn to do everything in love. Let's pray. God, we love You. Show us the beauty and the power that's available to us if we lean in in a more intentional way to fellowship, to connecting with one another, to praying with one another, to learning to follow You together, God. God, please save us from superficial Christian relationships and save us from the temptation to think because we're surrounded by Christians all day maybe or we have some core friendships that we don't have to do any rowing. Teach us, God, how to build fellowship and pursue your vision. In Jesus' name, amen.